Okay, looks like everybody's done here, so let's uh, look at these. Number one, among all the vehicles of special revelation, a personal relationship with Christ is first in importance in the church today. False. It's that's false, and 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 the re and the reason I say that is because you know we talked about the fact that there are that Jesus is a form of special revelation, and Hebrews does talk about him as being the last greatest form of special revelation, but we but we also argue that since he's not here. Uh, with us today, talking and being able to have a conversation, uh, he his his value as a means of special revelation diminishes. Instead, the Bible, because it's available and propositional, takes pride of place. So, yeah, and again, we we talked about some 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 religious schools of thought do place an enormous value on the existential encounter with Jesus Christ. And it is it is true that we have a relationship with Christ, but that's not a form of revelation for us. Uh, he doesn't actually speak to us directly in any sort of personal way. So that's, that's why that one is intended to be false. Is there a follow-up on that? I just said it was Scripture. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was looking for. Number two, Paul was inspired when he wrote the book of Romans. Said false. false. Why? Yeah, it's the writings that are inspired, not yeah. words. Yeah, that was a tricky one too. But everybody, nobody fell, fell for the trick on that one. Apparently, so so <clears throat> Romans was inspired. Paul wasn't. Number three, all of. The unrecorded statements that Jesus made during his earthly ministry were inspired. <clears throat> I think I want to change my answer now. I think a different way. Yeah, we, we we don't have any indication that anything other than that which is scripture in both passages. We're, we looked at one last week in Second Timothy, and then tonight we'll look at the one in Second Peter. Neither one indicates that anything is inspired other than what is written, the spigraphe, the, the writing. Um, and not and so so even though, I mean, in a general sense, everything that Jesus breathed out is breathed out by God, so inspired. <laughs> but you, but, but technically... I, I put false, but then yeah. I thought, it's all God breathes. Yeah. <laughs> so so technically, that's not an inspired statement. And we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can unpack that a little bit more as we work along that in the next couple of weeks, because it, it seems like there's sort of a package that God gives to us, this, this package of, of material that is inspired, that is inerrant, that is preserved, that's canonized, that's sufficient, and they all sort of come together as a package. And while there's other material that's true and authoritative so far as it goes, it doesn't fall into this block of material that comes to us as Scripture. So it wouldn't count what John said at the end of his book about everything that could have been written. Right. Yeah. If it had been written, then <laughs> yeah. then then it would be inspired scripture. 
but since it hasn't been written, what hasn't been written mm-hmm. is, is lost to us. It's not preserved. It's not canonized, and, and I don't see it as part of this block of material. We'll see if we can't tease this out as we as we work along. So you could say it was inspired, just not inscripturated, though, right? Well, certainly it's not inscripturated, but I think the the point is, in order for it to be inspired, it has to be inscripturated. So I would say, I would agree with Mark, Mark and I agree on this subject, but you can find a book somewhere, probably in this library, where somebody says what Jesus said was inspired. They're using the word inspired in a looser sense than what we're using it, but we like to confine it to a narrow because all, all the Bible, the only thing the Bible says is inspired is all Scripture is inspired. It doesn't say anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. But some people would say, well, it's it's true. It's genuine what Jesus said. I mean, in general sense, it is. It is, but not in a technical sense. Not in a technical sense. We're trying to confine it to that. That's why I said it's a little tricky because you can kind of you can find you can find somebody who would say this is true <laughs> in the world. Some yeah. theologian. <clears throat> okay, so what is inspiration then? Somebody offer me a definition. A divine act that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word. So you used the frames, frames definition, which shortest, I think is a really that good was the one. the shortest one. Yeah, I, think, I really think it's one of the best ones, too. I think that's the, that's the point. You know, they, he's captured the main point that there's an identity between what God says and what man says, and it's by some divine act, some supernatural act. That makes that possible. There's there's other things that can be said, and we're going to say them, uh, but I think that really captures the essence of what. What, what about is. what about if you said uh, it's a God's superintendence of human authors, so they wrote scripture? I tried to distill. I've tried to do. Right. What do you do? You like that or not like that? God's superintendence of human authors, so that they wrote scripture. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's true as far as it goes. I wonder if it doesn't say quite enough because it doesn't say that it. it, it cre- I think that creation of identity is is a is a critical, critical piece part. that that I think Frame's definition brings out. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's true. I, I think you could say more though. Yeah. Well, that's just really a kind of simplification of Ryrie's, you know, right. for a longer definition. Right. <clears throat> Okay. Well, good. Well, let's uh, pick up in our notes then. We looked at one major passage. There's two major passages on the uh, inspiration of Scripture. Well, I mean, there's probably more than that. We're actually going to look at three, really. But uh, uh, but the two that sort of stand out are are this one. Are we starting? Uh, We're on... Page 39, top 39. So we talked about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And then tonight we'll talk about 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20. 19, 20 and 21, I guess, is just really three verses. Sort of stretches out a little bit. Okay, so uh, we find here, we talked about verse 19 last week. We have the word of the prophets made more certain or absolutely certain. And you'll do right to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then he goes on to explain this word of the prophets. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture, again, this word graphe again, so we're, we're talking about the scriptures, 
came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It's not his interpretation of the data of the, you know, his 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 uh, you know explanation of the uh, the day and, and and his his understanding of it. Rather, prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it says spoke here, uh, but again, that's probably. Uh, the fact that it's scripture, uh, that doesn't create some sort of a impossibility or a contradiction here. But we often will say something like, you know, you know, you you you, uh, you leave a note for your children and, and, you know, to do something when you come home. And they say to each other, Dad said mow the lawn. <laughs> well, no, Dad didn't say it. Dad wrote it. But but it's it's that same kind of thing we have here. So men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But again, it says here that it's Scripture that they were saying. So uh, I don't think this really conflicts with what we just said about the uh, the inspiration only applying to what's written. It says here, inspiration then is not a matter of the prophet's own interpretation. Um, it actually says it does not become. Uh, so it, it, it does not spring into existence. No, it did not come about. It did not spring into existence by the human's own interpretation, which means here either that the scripture does not originate within human reflection, imagination, stimulating solutions to his own cultural, moral milieu, and also that scripture is not a human condensation, interpretation, or translation of ineffable ideas from God uh, that uh, can't be uh, ordinarily can't be put into words. Scripture is propositional phenomenon sourced in God Himself. It came about. It sprang into existence by an act of God. That's the point here. Instead, Scripture was pro- produced as men were carried along by the Spirit. Uh, interesting word here. It's one of the first words you learn in Greek. Not because it's an important word, but just because, I don't know why it shows up on the early lists there. Uh, But uh, pharaoh means to carry or to bear. And here it's translated as born along. And perhaps a, a, a parallel term that might help us understand it is in Acts 27 where uh, there's a description of ships being born on their courses by the wind and the waves. That is, the the wind is actually the energy uh, that drives a you know a, a ship with sails. Okay, which is what they had in those days. So while the biblical writers were active, using their rational faculties and personalities, we see this in the different vocabulary sets they use and the, the different. Uh, idiosyncrasies as they write they were passive in terms of the ultimate origin of scripture uh, they they didn't supply the energy they were the sail as it were on a sailing ship uh, but the energy that moved the ship was actually divine so the Holy Spirit then superintended the words and the styles used by the biblical authors in fact this this ends up here being a a third, I said there were three key passages on uh, inspiration. This is one that's sometimes overlooked. I think 
perhaps because people don't catch what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul's going on this long discussion here about how one receives the gospel and the and the power of the gospel, and he's uh, talking about his own strategy for uh, for sharing the gospel, and he says he doesn't use these 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 fancy techniques, these rhetorical techniques that were very popular in the day. Uh, he said, "I didn't I didn't come here. I, I came with weakness and fear." And much trembling. I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom, which was very prized in his day. Instead, he, he comes with a rather a, an awkward message. It's not very persuasive to speak of a cross as some sort of uh, rallying point. I mean, it's hard, it's hard for us to sort of step back into that day and think about what a cross was. Um, because we, we don't have them today, and it's been sanitized. You know, we, we go into a jewelry store and we can buy crosses, and it's oh yeah, I'll wear a cross. Uh, but but it was an it was an implement of, of capital punishment. It would be like a hangman's noose. You know, I yeah yeah I, I preached to you the hangman's noose. I mean, that that's that's kind of a weird message. Uh, um, but that's that's exactly what he does, and uh, so he's he's talking about his delivery. Of of the uh, word of God, but then he goes on to a little parenthesis, and he talks about how he got the material uh, that he's preaching, and and he and he uh, and from verses six to thirteen, he describes a little bit here about how he received the information. Now, oftentimes this this passage is thought of and even preached as something that, that happens to us when we read the Bible. But that's not his point. He's, he's actually explaining how he got the material. No eye has seen or ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So how did, how did they get it? Well, God revealed it to us by his Spirit. And the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men know the thoughts of man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, so the Spirit of God is active in communicating the thoughts of God to us. And so we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we can understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak. I think he's talking about the giving of the Scriptures here. Not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So he's telling us a little bit about the method of, of how inspiration works here. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily limit things to the inscripturated word here. Uh, there's probably room in this one for for oral prophecies and such, but I think the uh, but the, but the point seems to be the same. So the Holy Spirit superintends the process of of inspiration here, so that they are actually using a collection of words, a sequence of words that effectively communicates exactly what God intends. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't more than one way those words could be expressed. Uh, but what the Holy Spirit does is guarantees that whatever's written down is an appropriate way of communicating the exact idea that God had. Okay, so 
So we have here, not mechanical dictation, which I'm trying to avoid here, but something of what Warfield called a confluence. Perhaps doesn't get us any closer to what it is here, but I think it's a helpful word. Uh, A confluence of the word of God and the word of man in Kaiser's word. There's a living assimilation of the human author's style, vocabulary, words, and divine truth that is taking place. It seems like that's it, it comes as close as any passage in explaining exactly how inspiration works. Now, there's still a bit of a mystery involved. We're not sure exactly uh, how how the I mean, what did it feel like to be a, a writer of scripture? Did you, did you get sort of a buzz when you wrote? I I have no idea. Uh, but it, it probably comes as close as anything we have to explain the process that's going on. So this process of preparing men, shaping their rhetorical skills, began long before the writing actually took place. I think we find this when we look at Jeremiah here. Before I knew, formed you in the womb, God says to Jeremiah, before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. So it seems like there's a preparation process say here in his disposition, training, experience, even going back to their genetic lines and remote ancestry, that sets them up to be what they are intended to be here. Jeremiah, uh, in a sort of a show of what comes across now as as sort of a false humility, says, oh, sovereign Lord, I I don't know how to speak, I'm just a child. And Yahweh sort of, God sort of fires back at him pretty sternly here, don't say I'm only a child. Because I have put my words in your mouth. <laughs> okay. I prepared you for this. So don't, don't tell me you're not prepared. Because I prepared you. You're slighting me if you say I'm not prepared. Paul says something similar in Galatians 1. God set me apart from birth to reveal his son in me. Yeah. It seems like there's a preparation process. Even, even, you know, Paul with all of his, 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 his train, Jewish training really sets him up to be a, a, you know, an outstanding apostle. I mean, he didn't know it at the time, but he's, he's really setting himself up to have just a tremendous background to be able to, uh, to, to, to grasp and to, you know, to coordinate all this material that's coming and then actually to give new, new material. Okay, so that's, so again, we'd, we'd like to know more, a little, a little bit more about the method of inspiration, but that's about as close as we come. There's a preparation that God makes even before birth that, that enables people to have a vocabulary set that's, you know, that's, that's adequate to the task and then gives them and gives to them material so that, you know, he gives them data and they're able to combine it with, with words, you know. You know, massage the data and, and and put it forth into words that are understandable and and perfectly respect re- reflect the divine intention. Does that make sense? Does that follow? So when when Paul would write an epistle to a church, uh-huh. did he know that this would become or be scripture? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 actually some debate as to whether there's a, what uh, some call a canonical consciousness. That they knew that they were writing scripture. He was writing with authority to the church, right? Certainly, I think he knew he was writing something that's absolutely authoritative. Whether he knew he was writing scripture, I don't know. 
I think probably a better case could be made for Paul knowing that he's writing scripture, but then if you try, if you try and apply that to the whole of the scripture, I think it falls down a little bit. Uh, for instance, you know, Solomon wrote 1500 proverbs and only what about, you know, probably three or four hundred of them of his get into the, the book of proverbs. <clears throat> so what does that mean? That he was, Every one out of every five proverbs he writes, you know, oh, this one's an inspired one, or oh, this one's a none, none, four uninspired ones for every five, one inspired one. I, I don't know that there really was a canonical consciousness that I don't think it works for some of the scriptures. Sometimes they obviously did know they were speaking for God, uh, but uh, whether they always did, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. It's a good question, though. Dr. McCune held to a canonical consciousness. That's what I said. Is there a buzz? I'm not sure how one, how one would know. Uh, but uh, he was of a mind that they always did. Uh, I would say often they did, but I'm not sure I'm prepared to say they always did. Did uh, God say to Moses he no, would I've give never. him the words to say? Right. But did they? But did he know he was writing scripture? I, I think. I think the the prophets probably did know when they were speaking for God, mm-hmm. authoritatively for God. But did they know what was going to be inscripturated? Yeah, I'm not sure. In like in the case of Paul, was it <clears throat> is it the Colossians? He says, "Read the letter to the Laodiceans, right?" And uh, they should read the letter I've written to you. So. That's you know that yeah. comes into the question. Obviously, Paul thinks that letter to the Laodiceans is authoritative. Right. It's true. It's it's what he. But is it? Is, was it going to be part of Scripture? It wasn't part of Scripture. You know. And did Paul did Paul have this canonical consciousness? Did he know that there was going to be twenty seven books in the New Testament canon? That's <clears> what, <throat> I've never been. I've never felt like Doctor McCune said yes. I've said no. You said no. But it's hard to know. You know. Did Paul know there were going to be twenty seven books in, in the New Testament? I don't think he did. But maybe he knew some of his was Scripture. I don't know. It's, yeah. And you, they're authoritative. He says, sure. what I'm writing to you is authoritative. It's, it's, it's God's truth, and you've got to obey it. But, but that's true of whatever an apostle really said sort of ex cathedra. Anything right. an apostle wrote, he was a representative of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He had to be obeyed. That's the problem with modern-day apostles. If we have a modern-day apostle here, we, have to, we really have to listen to him. If there is such a thing as a modern-day apostle, he deserves equal authority to any book we've got here. Yeah. And he needs to be listened to. Well, and that would be the problem with the Pope, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's why they claim it, because yeah. we, yeah, if you really believe he's yeah. he's he's apostolic succession, succession, then you he's not not even apostolic, isn't he? He's a representative of Christ. <laughs> well, the bishops are right. at least, you know, yeah. and you got to listen to the bishops of the church, and right. <clears throat> so that that's. That's about all we can say about method. We'd like to know more, but uh, that's about all that we have. Um, we do know a little bit about the extent of biblical inspiration. Uh, and this is an important point. Uh, we talked earlier about the idea that sometimes floated that there's partial inspiration, that uh, particularly the, the moral sections are inspired while some of the filler, the science portions, the history portions may not be 
be accurate. But the Second Timothy makes it pretty clear that that's not the case. We we talked. I don't know if you ever heard this term, plenary inspiration. The word that doesn't show up. About the only other place that I I know it's used is if you go to a conference and they'll have workshops and then they'll have a plenary session, which is when everybody comes to one spot. They all come to the the big room and. Uh, and uh, there's a plenary session, so it means all, all everyone comes. So well, that's what they're doing. The ladies, they're having a plenary session, and they break up into small groups. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, just an inside knowledge. Right? <laughs> now, would some say that to, uh, Paul's referring to? the Old Testament when he says the word scriptures? I think he is primarily okay. Um, I mean, we, we do, we're going to, actually we're going to come up here in a few, a few, few pages here where that word scripture does seem to expand on it just a couple of occasions to include some New Testament material. But primarily they are talking about the, the Old Testament scriptures. Cause that's, that's the, that's the block of material that they would have had available. I mean, the, when this is being written, I mean, the New Testament's, well, it's scattered all over and, and it's just, I mean, it's only starting to be collected in. So it's a, so he would be thinking primarily of the Old Testament scriptures, but but I, eventually it would include all of them. Yeah. So in Second Timothy, you're saying there? right that, that all scripture would have been yeah. back. But as soon as something becomes scripture, it would be part of this all scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, probably there were there was very little. At this point, that was thought of as New Testament scripture. There's some. There's, we're starting to collect this idea that there's a New Testament canon starting to coalesce, but it's 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 quite far from being complete at this point. Because at that point, you had some of the words of Christ. Right? Yeah, when he was writing that. Yeah, there was a, certainly was a Jesus tradition, but even even the Gospels were weren't written right away. Uh, they're, they're written sometime after. The fact. I mean, Paul. Paul, you know, uh, wrote writes Galatians. James writes his book. Probably these are probably some of the very earliest books. So a lot of these books were written before the Gospels were. So, so plenary inspiration. All Scripture is inspired. So anything that anything that takes it is part of this block of material that is graphe is all inspired. It is all, uh, there's an identity of the word of man with the word of God. And then the other term you'll sometimes hear, so plenary inspiration and then verbal inspiration, means that the very words of the Bible are God-breathed. And we're going to come into a little bit of a question here that we're going to have to talk about here, because we had said already, we're not talking dictation. Nonetheless, we talk about verbal inspiration that is, the words of Scripture are inspired. Okay, in fact, there's really, I mean, in in, a, in the broadest sense, it's utter nonsense to think of anything else other than verbal inspiration because it's made out of words. But the, the question is: is each word that is selected by the human author is that inspired? And then, how do you prevent some sort of a dictation theory if that's the case? Let's let's put out the passages first, and then we got a little text like discussion box there below. Second Samuel twenty three two, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. This is David speaking. 
his word was on my tongue, like, literally under my tongue. You know, his you know his his words were in my mouth. Is 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 the language here? Jeremiah one nine, I have put my words in your mouth, and then I say in principle, there's these sections in Exodus and Deuteronomy which speak about a prophet's words, and this would include verbal prophecies as well. But uh, the whole point is that if you know if uh, you know there's, there's prophecy. And within prophecy is a, is a subset, which is, which is inspired scripture. And we find that if, if, uh, that everything that a prophet says is true and authoritative and must be obeyed. And in fact, if there's ever a discovery that is not, uh, that that's, you know, that prophet's taken out and stoned, uh, which is pretty significant here. First Corinthians 2.13, we just looked at that. What we speak is not words taught us by human wisdom, but words taught by the Holy Spirit. So words informed by the Holy Spirit at, at a minimum, expressing spiritual thoughts, sp- spiritual truths, and spiritual words. Uh, and Jesus says, if you do not believe Moses' writing, how will you believe my words? So there are they're of a type, you know, his words and Jesus' words and Moses' words are of the, are of the same kind. So, so the words are inspired. The very words of scripture, uh, uh, have, have divine origin. But then we come to this question. So, and, and, and so we ask, okay, why do some sections of scripture, which are covering the same material, use different words? I put down a couple of examples, three examples here. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the word used is Hebrew word zakar. That's uh, incidental except for the fact that that's the word that is used. In fact, this is what... It's the word written by the finger of God, right? So, so we're not we're not talking just to, about uh, even if there could have been any wiggle room with what is written by Moses. This there, there's no question here. These are these are actually inscribed in stone, in stone right? <laughs> and, and so, but then we come to Deuteronomy five twelve. Of course, Deuteronomy is the meaning of that word is what the, the second law. So the second giving of the law, Moses comes along, and and reiterates the Ten Commandments in this chapter. But when it comes to the Sabbath command, he says, keep the Sabbath. And he uses a different word, shamar. That's, that's, that's pretty bold of him, right? He's taken the word that was inscribed in stone by the finger of God, and he's changed it. Okay, how does he, get it? How does, how does he do that? Let's look at a couple more before we start answering Second Kings 25, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, return and say to, uh, somehow that one got messed up. It's supposed to be shuv. The letters got mixed up. I'm not sure how that happened. It's supposed to be shuv. Um, uh, if you don't know the Hebrew letters, it doesn't mean make tell. one difference. But, but somehow those letters got scrambled. You were in, in Microsoft Word reversing? Yeah. Yep. 
But this is the old Microsoft Word. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably why. So, <laughs> so, so, so shoe. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Is that <laughs> well, it works. It, it's, it's, it's at least close if we change left to right. <laughs> change Hebrew from left to right. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, return and say something to Hezekiah, give a message. And then Isaiah 38, if you're familiar with Isaiah, you, you find actually whole chapters that are word for word. Um, one of the curiosities of, of the scripture here, but we've got long sections that are word for word, but when we come here, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, rather than saying return, he says, go to say to Hezekiah, halak, it's a different word. So which did he say? Or did, did Isaiah get it right here, or did whoever wrote Kings get it right? Who quoted God right? Who, who quoted God correctly? And who, who made a mistake is perhaps our question. Another one here, there's a lot of them in, in the Gospels, uh, but the Beatitudes are perhaps more familiar to us. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then when Luke goes through the same Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you when men hate you. That's different than insulting. When they exclude you, well, it doesn't even correspond quite exactly with any of those. Insult you. Okay, there's one that's the same. And reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Well, which one did Jesus say? Did, did, did he use hate? Did he say me or did he say Son of Man? Which which, which of these words do we use? And so perhaps I'll, I'll throw that out to you. Is What do we do with those passages? Dr. Combs. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he trying to, or putting the two together, get a particular concept across? Okay. Like keep the Sabbath. Well, well why did he change the word? Remember the Sabbath. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Keep. Yeah. Keep going. I think you're you're on a very good track here. Their education so, and their background too. Right? So in order to teach, whoever's reading it, they should be, be able to do it either way, whether he says remember or. Or uh, keep whoever we're talking to would understand that it means do right. this. Okay. It's a command. That's right. The same author there. Okay. Other thoughts? I mean, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't work if you know if I if we were going to write a if I was going to write some sort of a research paper and hand it in here. And, uh, you know, I want to cite some, some commentary, and I put quotation marks, and I, I put some, and, and I, eh, that's, I'll, I'll rearrange the words, I'll, I'll, I'll supply different words, I don't like the words you used, I'll supply some different words that make it pop a little bit more. Well, you wouldn't get away with that in, in, in modern writing. I mean, if somebody looked it up, they would say, no, you, you can't, you can't play fast and loose with somebody else's words. You've got to get the words exactly right, and that's and that is the way we we tend to operate today. We 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 have because of Google, <laughs> we can find out whether people were were precise or not, and we've we've come to expect that uh, if somebody's quoted in the newspaper or or wherever it is that it's word for word what's said, but probably is not the case in this in this. There there are more than one way. To say the same words. I was going to say in the first one, Exodus, that and Deuteronomy, that was Moses. 
It's well, Moses. Kind of the same yeah, so it's yeah. the same author, separated by no more than forty years. So you wouldn't think that you, know, you wouldn't yeah. even think that the language has Matthew evolved. And Luke, it's right. a little different story. Right. But they're still quoting Jesus. Is yeah. the point? Right. Yeah. But but I think yeah, I think you were on to something there when you said that there's a sense in which the extra word now clarifies the nuance and makes it clearer to the mm-hmm. to the hearer exactly what's meant. Now it's not as though they wouldn't have understood remember the Sabbath day, but. You know, when we think of the word "remember," it's got a range of meanings. It can be it can be something like you know simply like data recall. Well, that's not what he's saying. It's not just oh, it's Saturday. It's it's the Sabbath. I remembered. I woke up and I turned the alarm off and went back to bed because it was Saturday. Well, that's not what he's saying. He's saying observe the Sabbath day. Keep you know uh, uh, keep the Sabbath day. And so, as he as he supplies this second word, it actually gives us a, a nuance that actually clarifies the previous word um, that that makes it clearer to us exactly and precisely what was meant. You know, I I, mean, I could say the word. You know, someone was, you know, someone said tragically killed. And police come and question me, and I say, I ain't never killed nobody. Or I could say, I've never killed anyone. Which one was which one was more precise? Well, the second one may have been more precise, but is there, is there any doubt that I meant the same thing by those words? No, and, and even though I perhaps, you know, the first time I used a, a faux pas there, I used a double negative that actually turned my statement into a positive, I, I have killed people, but... But nobody thinks that way. Everybody recognizes there's more than one way to say, to say the same same thing. Okay, um, there's actually a debate here back in the, I think it was the 80s. If I'm remembering, uh, but there was a debate. Uh, there's a fellow down at, at Master Seminary. Generally, think very highly of, but uh, um, he had this article. A fellow by the name of Green. Um, and he argued that if the words of Matthew and the words of Luke conflict, then Jesus must have said the same thing twice in different ways. And Luke quoted him one time, and Matthew quoted him the other time. And I don't know that that's really a necessary thing. Uh, words can communicate this. Uh, different word sets can communicate precisely the same meaning, even though they're not identical to one another. And I don't know that we have to be concerned uh, by the fact that there are little variations in the words uh, when, we, when we see when we see them. Yeah, because if two people see an accident, they could they could give you a totally different report, but it would still mean the same thing. True, and, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit more of a there's a little you've added a little twist Maybe there that perhaps that's because additional detail from one person. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's detail. Um, and the point might be different, but yeah, it's, somebody can actually be wrong in, in, when you're when you're talking oh, about. Yeah. Yeah. But so these, neither of these can be wrong. Right. So that's that's. I mean, that adds a little bit of a twist there that, that doesn't perhaps doesn't parallel your your situation yeah. precisely. But I think your your point is still there, though. Your, your point is still there. Uh, people have you know different writers have different purposes for their writing, and so they you know word things so that. To, to maximize the point that they're trying to make, and that's not an inappropriate or or, or a careless way to use language. So I would 
Bible translators get into. I mean, there right. wouldn't be necessarily be a word in a lot of these languages, that right? Well, even in English. Yeah, right. that's coming up here in a in a, in a few pages so here because to, that creates a real difficulty. Yeah, they're going to try to translation. give the exact meaning in a language that may not have those words. Exactly. I was just about to say that our KJV friends, I would think, would struggle with this then. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that does that does come to bear. Right. They say that you cannot you cannot express those words any other yeah, way than what they are right here. Yeah. That's the only inspired way. Right. Where uh, we would say, well, that's not how language works. Mm-hmm. Different word sets can 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 communicate self same meaning, mm-hmm. and some course. Of course, when we're talking about this, sometimes we actually have translations that are doing a better job than the original one because there's no claim to inerrancy in, in an English translation. Yeah, good points. So, okay. How do we prove then that the Bible is inspired? Well, other than the statements here that are are made in scripture is there is there anything more that we can say and obviously they say a lot so it must must be we'll, we'll find out okay um, how do you prove the inspiration of scripture now let's do some introduction of this question here and then we'll we'll get into the specifics here scholars often present an array of biblical an extra biblical proof as a corroboration of divine inspiration Okay, so they demonstrate that the Bible, for instance, is consistent with our knowledge of science and history. They, could, they demonstrate the Bible has proved indestructible through the ages, that its prophecies have been fulfilled, that the information in it has been effective in transforming lives and even whole societies. All these things are true, but they fail to prove that the Bible is inspired. Here's some reasons why that's the case. Number one, Reliance on external proofs for proof of inspiration cedes the Bible's own inherent authority to other higher authorities. So if I'm saying, okay, you know, I I remember, it's been a while now, but Time Magazine had on the front cover here several years ago, uh, you know, a placard that had David written on it in, in Hebrew letters. And uh, the uh, I can't remember the precise caption, but it was something something to the effect of David really did exist, <laughs> and and I and I remember thinking, yeah, I knew that already. <laughs> but 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 what 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 they what the editors of Time Magazine were saying was that the Bible is less certain than archaeology, and so if archaeology comes and says there was a David. Well, then maybe the Bible is true, at least at that point. <laughs> but what, what, what we've done then is said that our ultimate authority, our, our, our most foolproof and, and uh, you know, ironclad proof of anything is archaeology or history. Or that's not, well, that's not true. The Bible is more certain than any of those things. And so when we tra- when we, if we have to wait to have all the corroboration from science and history and all to, in order for us to believe the Bible, then we're, we're, we're barking up the wrong tree here. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're looking for proof uh, when we should be looking to the scriptures themselves as the highest form of authority. Okay, And I think we have in principle here 
again, catch catch the analogy here in, in Hebrews six thirteen. Remember, the promise was made to Abraham, and and uh, Abraham was was seeking for some sort of a corroboration. How do I know that what you are saying is true? And when God made His promise, since there was nothing greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Okay. Now we swear on the Bible, or we we swear before God, because He's greater than us. But when it came to okay, how can I know that what God said is true? It's like okay, there, there's nothing greater. <laughs> uh, so so what did he do? He swears by himself, which is the the only appropriate response that he had. And I think that we've got the same principle in play here. If we're going to try and prove the Bible, we don't prove the Bible by looking outside the Bible for authority sources that are greater in authority than the Bible itself. Secondly here, another problem here, reliance on external proofs for proof of inspiration requires that the ground of faith be reduced to a scientific demonstration that the Bible's teaching are self-consistent and true. So faith is no longer faith, it's sight. I probably shouldn't bring this up because it's it's the wrong time of year because uh, you might might end up singing it in church. You know, there's a there's a song that uh, um, uh, that's sung sometimes at Easter time. It's a, a newer song uh, that uh, the resurrection by the resurrection faith is clothed with certainty. So it's an interesting line. Probably cat passes most people by when when it's. When it's sung here, but it it I've I've always cringed when I read this when I when I when I sing that line, because faith is not clothed in certainty because the resurrection occurred. Faith is, by definition, certainty. Okay, and it's a certainty that does not require sight in order to survive. Okay, uh, and, and so and so if if we're going to say that we have to prove that the Bible is true by science or or history or archaeology or geology or, or some other discipline, what we're saying here is that we really don't have faith that is anything other than sight. And the scripture are pretty clear that that's not the case. We walk by faith and not by sight. You know, not everything in here is is demonstrable. I mean, the fact is, if you're if you're going to wait for science to corroborate a virgin birth, you're going to wait a long time. It's not going to happen. Any number of things that are miraculous or ineffable, you know, a trinity, for instance. These things can't be proved. They won't be proved. Uh, and yet we have to accept them. And that's the point here that Murray makes on this third point. Uh, reliance on external proofs for inspiration effectively negates all appeal to the Bible for anything. The doctrine of Scripture must be elicited from the Scripture just as any other doctrine should be. If the doctrine of Scripture is denied its right to appeal to Scripture for its support, then what right does any other doctrine have to make this appeal? Faith in the Trinity does not have to wait for the resolution of all difficulties uh, that the teaching of Scripture presents to us on the question, it does not have to wait for all the resolution of all apparent contradictions in the teaching of the Scripture on the Trinity. So neither does faith in Scripture as the inerrant Word of God have to wait for the resolution of all difficulties in the matter of inerrancy. 
If this position with respect to the ground of faith in Scripture is abandoned, then appeal to the Bible for the ground of faith in any other doctrine must also be abandoned. Let me see if I can't tease this out a little bit. Let me ask you a question. You know, why do you believe that Christ died on the cross? This is not a trick question. Okay. Why do you believe Jesus died on the cross? So why do you believe he rose from the dead? That's because of the Bible. So why do you believe he's coming again? Because the Bible says so. And why do you believe that uh, that, uh, that the earth was created in six days? The Bible says so. So why do you believe the Bible is true? Everything else that was said is, is true. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's, there's the answer that I was looking for, you know, because the Bible says so. And that's, that's the point that Murray's making, okay, um, which seems a little bit circular to us, but that's, but that's the point he's making. If we cannot believe that the Bible is true by appeal to the Bible itself, then anything else that the Bible says is is similarly suspect. Yeah. And so I think what tends to happen is, you know, a lot of people, when they come to that last question, it's like, I can't say because the Bible says so. So, you know, see that tree over there? It, yeah, you know, if we, if, we, if we look at the, you know, well, no, no, that's, that's, not how, that's not how it works. And we know that the Bible is true, ultimately, because the Bible says so. I thought Thomas did a nice, Thomas, Thomas does a nice job. I thought about that, reading through that. Yeah. Yeah, man, he does That's a very a good, good job at addressing that. Which is why we're going to spend a lot of time going through just dozens of passages that say that the Bible is inspired or inerrant or true. Uh, well, we can go through them fairly quickly because they all say that. But I, but I don't want to lose the weight of all of these texts that are all saying the same thing. So we'll go through them quickly, but we'll go through them all just because of because of that because of that point here. So the question of proof for biblical inspiration instead rests on what the Bible says about its own character. Like all Christian doctrines, proof of the Bible's inspired quality is found in its intrinsic claims to its own authority. The Bible is, these are some key words that sometimes pop up here, self-attesting and self-authenticating. It doesn't rely on something outside of itself. It, it has proof within itself. Its own inherent truth claims and intrinsic perfections make it authoritative. And such authority cannot be delegated or bestowed on the Bible. You can't put some sort of a premature on it and say, okay, we've validated this, and so now we know it's true. Rather, it can be recognized and received. So it's not delegated. Authority is not delegated. It's recognized and received by means of the Spirit's illuminating work. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that here. Uh, illumination becomes an important point for us. It's got a twofold effect. And one of the, one of the effects, I think, is that the Holy Spirit uh, indicates to believers uh, what his words are. We recognize the, 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 the words of God, even as we recognize the hand of God in our creation. Uh, and and how, do, how do people recognize the handiwork of God in creation? Well, it's by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to recognize it. Now, some people deny it. They're fools. Uh, they, they, they deny that there's any handiwork out there. Uh, but it's a work of God's grace 
to to help us to recognize and embrace the fact that that's God's handiwork. Same thing is true of the Word of God. Um, it is God's Word, and in fact, you know, if, even if an unbeliever reads it, I think if he's honest with himself, he says, you know, this has got the this has got the ring of truth to it, um, but he doesn't want it. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't want to embrace it. Okay. Can a person worship the Bible more than Jesus or God? Probably, yeah. Um, I, I think sometimes it can be treated, uh, and we talked about some of the King James only folks, yeah. and it can be treated almost as though it's a, yeah, it, as, a, as an idol. You know, it, mm-hmm. There's a book that just came out here by Mark Ward uh, on on the King James, and he's, uh, it's probably comes a little bit too late to the discussion to be of much use, but it's but it's, it's good so far as it goes. And uh, one of the points he makes is, you've got people who are King James only, they're having the foggiest idea of what a lot of the words mean. Mm-hmm. And yet they keep using it, because these, this, is, this, is the, this, is the, this is the right one. We don't know what it means. <laughs> we, we've, lost, we've lost sight of what some of these words, they've gone out of English usage. Um, he goes through these, these words have gone out of usage, and then he goes through another list of words uh, that the meaning has changed, so that they don't mean what they used to mean, which really confuses the reader. Uh, so, but I think that you know, that that probably is an instance of someone who's effectively worshiping the Bible rather than the God of the Bible and doing what the Bible says. I mean, it shouldn't keep us from reading our Bibles, but. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's probably true that it's possible. It seems like since I was a kid, though, having all not making a King James argument, but memorization isn't yeah, it's the key as much anymore because everybody's got everyone. Bible. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think you're right. I think that and he that's and uh, you, you'd be interested in that book uh, that uh, Ward wrote. He he said there are some things that we lost. When we when we went away from a common translation, I think it's probably true. I don't think it's enough to no make us go back, but but there is something that's lost, um, and probably gives us a good reason to be consistent within a church and what translation is the pulpit translation used in Sunday schools and such. Because I, th- I think there is some benefit to having a common translation. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, got a little off track there, but, uh, but you're right. So back to this self-authenticating nature of Scripture. What the Westminster Confession says is that the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Uh, John Frame says in his book, the conclusion seems to be that God himself identifies himself to his hearers. And I think it's a, it's a it's a carefully wrought statement there uh, that, that he makes. So we we know what the script that the scriptures are true because of the work of God in us. Okay. Um, and, and you mean by that in believers? Yes, uh, uh, yeah. There, there's a caveat I have okay. there because I think there is a sense in which even the unbeliever 
recognizes the voice of God, recognizes the handiwork of God. I mean, that, that's what Roman Catholic what, says, right? So you're basing that on Romans 1. Okay. Right. Is that the same thing you would say for creation, too? Right. Okay. Yeah, they, yeah, I mean, they, they know God from the revelation. Right. They recognize him as such, but but they suppress it. They exchange that truth for a lie. And I think, and and by implication, I think the same thing becomes true of the scriptures. I think that uh, it's it's hard to know what kind of language to use here, Uh, but uh, there can be unbelievers, I believe, who will honestly say, yeah, that that is the word of God, but I, I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, I, so, so uh, again, I, there's, there's some language that I've read in some some different authors that the that uh, the, the I hate I hate to use the kind of language here, but the the the, the mind awakened. <laughs> it's, it's it's language I don't like to use uh, because I don't want to use awakening language for anything less than uh, regeneration. But there's a sense in which. There are some times that you can get even an unbeliever to be honest with you and say, yeah, I know that's true, but <laughs> no, I don't want it. But this argument, the self-authenticating argument mm-hmm. to the world, that's got to be foolish because, I mean, I could write something and say, because I write it, it's authentic. I mean, right. Right. But I mean, the only way but, to believe that yeah. is the, re- the regenerate heart, right? But but there are there are also there are also external. We're, we're going to get it. We're going to spend most of our time on the internal, it, what, what Calvin called the in, indicia interna, the in, in, internal internal proofs of the scripture. But there are also external demonstrations of of truth that I think carry weight. That can be felt by even by the unbeliever at the time. So, but let's look at the scriptures here and see if we can't tease this out here. First uh, Corinthians two fourteen: the man without the spirit, so the natural man, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. You're foolish to it; he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Which I like the word spiritually appraised better. Because that's what the next line uses. The spiritual man makes judgment or appraises all things correctly, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ, and there's there's the the, the issue here. We're not we're not natural men. We're not men without the Spirit. Rather, we have the mind of Christ, and for this reason, we can correctly appraise. The scriptures for what they are. Okay. Um, again, it's not a statement that the 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 man without the spirit cannot know what the words mean, or even that he cannot know that these are God's words. But he doesn't appraise them appropriately. He says, "I don't welcome these words. I don't want these words. I reject these words." Uh, even though he might be able to, uh, the, the idea here is not that he can't, they're just gobbledygooked a page here and say they can't understand them. That's not the point. But rather, he cannot truly grasp their significance and welcome it. He doesn't accept. That's probably a, perhaps a little stronger word might be the man when without the Spirit does not welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God. Okay? So the spiritual man, the man who is regenerate, 
Uh, all, all regenerate persons uniformly recognize and embrace the word of God for what it is. First uh, John 2.27 says something similar. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know. And it's, it's perhaps a, a line that's a little bit confusing to us here. So all of you know what? Perhaps the, is, is the question. That, and, and But the point seems to be that we once we are believers, we have this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's called an unction in King James, right? You know, this... This anointing from the Holy Spirit that we can actually, in, in some sense, recognize the Word of God. Actually, yeah, again, talking about Calvin, um, he actually has, he splits illumination into two ideas. He talks about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to embrace and to welcome and to love the Word of God. But he also talks about an internal testimony of the Spirit. Um, as a sort of a separate but related work of God that actually allows us us to recognize the Word of God. So that was his understanding. I think it, I think it holds. I think it holds uh, that the, that the Holy Spirit causes us to say, "Yeah, that's the Word of God." And then it says, "And not only is it the Word of God, it's it's the Word of God that should inform the way I live, and and I embrace it for what it is." So there's sort of a twofold work there. So, quoting Thomas Thomas, your textbook here, the Christian must begin in his approach to scriptures with the assumption that the Bible is the word inspired word of God. And we hold to this view as to the nature of the Bible, not as a result of some logical argument or series of empirical proofs, but because God, in his sovereign grace, has regenerated us, has infused spiritual life into spiritually dead sinners. We have been born again. He has ripped those blinders from our spiritually blind eyes so that we can see and receive and understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now we can recognize the Bible for what it is. The very Word of God, whereas we were not able to before. That's from your textbook there. So, uh, ultimately we're going to say we know that the Bible is inspired because of the words of the Bible themselves. One last point here, um, and perhaps an answer to some objections here, uh, before we'll get into the scriptures themselves. Since appeals to external proofs for inspiration are both self-defeating and deleterious to biblical authority, and wholly effective due to the effects of depravity, this syllabus will will present only the Bible's witness to its own inspiration. There's two objections to this. One is the charge of circular reasoning. And And Dave brought this up already. You know, why do you believe the Bible? Because the Bible says so. Why do? You, well, okay, you, you, you're, you're a rather tight circle here. All reasoning is ultimately circular, however, in that it begins with unproven presuppositions. Remember, we talked about that last time. You know, we we uh, you, you want to know what you know what someone's presuppositions are. You ask, you ask why, 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 why. You see any, almost any sequence of, of why questions will take you back to his ultimate first principles. When he no longer has an answer other than, well, it's just because. <laughs> because that's the way things are. Or, or something like that. Okay, you've reached, you've reached his presupposition. Okay. Um, and, uh, so all people have circular reasoning. So, you know, you could ask somebody why, why, you know, why Why do you, you know, we, we did that thing with the seed, right? Did we do the thing with the seed last, uh, you know, somebody plants a seed, why Why did you plant the seed? 
uh, well, because we have to have food, why do we need to have food? Why, uh, well, because we need to live, why do we need to live? Well, now you're starting to, now you're starting to get into more philosophical questions here. Why do we have to live? Well, the Bible tells us one answer. Other people have different answers. I live, I live for fame. I live for wealth. I live for power. Uh, and, and you ultimately come to, so why do you, why do you have to get wealthy? Well, it's because, you know, that's, it's just it. I just I want to get wealthy. That's 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 the goal, you know. It's, uh, because he who gets to the you know the one who <coughs> dies with the most toys wins, right? Well, okay. Uh, you you just told me what your ultimate presupposition is uh, for the Christian. Ideally, the question it always is because God is and God has said so. Why did God? I, I, there's there's no more why. Because God, that's where it stops. God is, God has spoken, and that's that's my my first principle. And so that's my presupposition. Hopefully, it's all your presupposition as well. But all people do that. It just sometimes takes us a little bit longer to find out what that first principle is. There, people don't know what their first principles are, and actually may be surprised at times to find out what they are. Okay, but uh, we we get there a little quicker because we know. So the self-attestingly true scriptures are the Christian presupposition and so cannot be set aside in lieu of appeals to more basic presuppositions as Frame aptly notes. Circularity of a kind is unavoidable when one seeks to defend ultimate standards of truth for one's defense must itself be accountable to that standard. Okay, So the Bible is and uh, that's, that's our first principle. Perhaps we could then say, and Dave mentioned this, well, what if somebody says, well, I believe that this particular script, I believe that the Quran, uh, or is, is, is inspired by God, and that's my first principle, and I believe it because it says I should believe it. Okay, and, and so somebody else will, you know, appeal to some other scripture or some other principle of some sort, uh, as their, as their bedrock principle. But here's, here's the, here's the answer to this. First, the totality of the Bible's uniquely consistent claims to self-attestation and its capacity, and it's perhaps a little bit thick here, its capacities for supplying transcendentals is unique among literature. Okay, uh, So the Bible actually says over and 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 over again, it's true. I mean, that's, that's sort of the first line of this argument. Whereas... You, you don't find that true in, in other sources, okay? The Bible actually claims it, so it's, it's, it consistently claims it. And then it actually, I, I say here, it supplies transcendentals. It can explain why the world works. It can explain even why there are alternative views and can explain why people hold them. Uh, whereas, whereas most systems, you know, fall apart when it's trying to answer the questions of other uh, alternative worldviews, the Bible actually does explains all those things and and gives preconditions of all intelligible thought and make makes sense of the whole world. Secondly, the Bible's unique appeals to the immediate recognition of God and His revelatory voice are unique. You know, the, the how do we how do we know that God is? Because he's revealed himself, and everybody knows it. 
Then thirdly, the uniquely attendant, convicting, and illuminating works of the Holy Spirit are are unique to the Christian faith. So uh, we we're not just we're not just saying you know I believe this and I'm digging in my heels. You can believe whatever you believe and you can dig in your heels. Uh, that's not what we're saying. We're not. It's, I'm not saying you know okay you believe the Quran okay well there's nothing more than we can say then you know no I can say I believe the Bible and in fact. My Bible can make a make a make a shambles of what you believe. I think it's sort of sort of that you know that, that whole thing. You remember remember when Moses uh, took those took the this, this rod and turned it into a snake, and and so and then uh, then the the false the false the, the false prophets there of the of the Egyptian religion said, oh, he can do that too. So they do the same thing. And then what happens? Well, Moses eats them all up. You know, I think if I, that's, that's the kind of the picture I'm trying to say here. Okay. You can say that you could, you're, you're, you're on par with what I'm saying, but, but my Bible can eat yours up is, is, is the idea here. If I, if I can put it that way. Um, so ultimately, we're looking at what the scriptures have to say, and, it, and it's not like anything else. It's unique in, in, its, in, its, in its approach. So next time we'll come together, we'll start running through these texts, and I think we'll, we'll go fairly quickly here through the next uh, five pages or so, um, and that's, that's by design. I, just want, I do want to overwhelm you, though, with the, number of, the sheer number of texts uh, that speak to the inspiration of Scripture. So even though we'll go fast, I don't want you to lose that point. Uh, okay, any any sort of wrap-up questions here? <clears throat> okay, if not, then we'll we'll meet back next time. Next time, following week we're off, but. Uh, but uh, next week we are we're still we're still meeting. Together.